deserved and well-needed vacation this week, so uh, we're excited they get to do that, but I'm excited I get to talk to you this morning. In fact, I'm excited as I've ever been to be a part of the Tri-Cities Church community. It's, it's, it's a great time to be a part of Tri-Cities Church. I'm so glad that God has brought us Pastor Lamar Hardwick and his family and uh, what they have, have been bringing to the church, and so uh, we, we pray for them this morning. God is good. God is good. And today we're beginning uh, a six-week message series called This Is Us. This Is Us. And it's about the things that we value as a church, the concepts that we value. And you'll see these words that are hanging behind me on these banners every week. And you read them every week. And maybe you you think about them. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had our first newcomer's lunch. And I was so excited. And my heart was just full because... We asked the question, why did you come to Tri-Cities Church, and then why do you continue to keep coming? And just about every single person around the circle in their answer gave one of our value words. That's really, really, really cool, because that means you're living those values out. That means that, that, that what God has given us as values, you are demonstrating, and I, I'm excited about that. He's empowering us to live them out. So this series is not only going to be an exploration and an explanation of those values, the what of them, but it's also going to be a, uh, a take a look at the why. Why do we value these things? Why, why are they important? And one of the reasons we're doing this is to make sure that everything that we're doing as a church is rooted in the will of God, is rooted in Scripture, that it's not just something that is a trend, it's something that's cool to do, because all of those things, that's, that's shifting sand. We want to be rooted in the Word of God. We want, we want things that te- stand the test of time. And to value something because God is calling us to it is to value something that will make an eternal impact. So this morning we're going to start with one value that if you knew nothing else about Tri-Cities Church and you walked in before anybody said a word, you would know that we value this. You know what that thing is? Being on time. You're laughing for a reason. No, of course not. (laughs) It's diversity. You look around and you see people who don't look like you on every row. And and you see people who who, uh, come from different backgrounds, different economic situations, different, uh, even some different languages here in the room. And it's a beautiful thing. And, And we value diversity. Now, I'm titling this Sermon on Diversity, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Has anybody ever seen that movie? Yeah, you're, you're revealing your age as you raise your hand. Or you like to watch Turner Classic movies, maybe. Because that movie was back in 1967. It was made in 1967. But it was a pretty controversial movie. It was about a newly engaged couple. One, a white socialite. One, a very successful black doctor. And they had a lot of difficulties. Difficulties sharing their news, their excitement with her parents first and then his parents. And that's what the, the whole movie's about. At the time of this movie, the interracial marriage was still illegal in the United States in 17 states. So it was a controversial movie. But I believe the title of the film is intriguing in and of itself. Think about it. Eating dinner together, sharing a meal together around a table, speaks volumes. It, it's a place of connection. 
It's a place of conversation. It's a place of, of presence, being present with one another. And so the thought of sharing a table with those of different histories and economics and politics and likes and dislikes, not to mention an outward appearance, is, is both exciting and, and it's challenging. And as we'll see today, the concept of this is biblical. It's not just a good idea, it's biblical. And I want us to start there. And That's why I've got the table up here. That's why we're going to sit across the table and have a good conversation this morning. Amen? The Lord's Prayer, Jesus' model prayer, it's been repeated thousands and thousands of times over the last 2,000 years. But one of the most intriguing lines in that prayer is, Thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? You see, this line reveals the purpose of the follower of Jesus. This line says that we want to bring as much heaven as we can to earth so that we can bring as many people from earth to heaven. That's what that line means. And so, uh, thankfully, the Bible gives us a, a couple of glimpses into what heaven's going to be like. Uh, because Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven, it would be kind of hard if we didn't know anything about heaven, right? But the book of Revelation talks about it. If you look at Revelation, uh, the 19th chapter, we see a huge feast, a huge table spread. It's a wedding feast. Uh, the 19th chapter, uh, verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, Jesus for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and His bride has prepared herself. She has, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Now you can bet this wedding feast, there's not going to be any mints and cheese straws and all that kind of stuff. Now this is going to be prime rib feast, right? This is going to be a feast. The book of Revelation identifies the lamb as Jesus, and then the bride is who? It's the church. It's the church. Now, if you are wondering, if you're guessing who is going to be coming to that dinner, it's going to be the church. It's going to be you. And if, you, if you're wondering what that church is going to look like, you just have to look a little bit before that in Revelation. In Revelation 7, 9, and John describes it. He says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. You know, I hadn't thought about this before I was preparing this, uh, this message, and I listened to a message from Tony Evans, and he talked about how there's going to be races in heaven. I didn't think about that until, until he pointed that out from that verse. So whatever race you are, I mean, you might as well lay off the suntan, uh, oil, all that good stuff, because whatever race you are here, you're going to be that race in heaven forever. So accept it. Be proud. Be proud. So this wedding table is going to be some kind of meal. I thought, I thought about it this week. I think there's going to be tacos y frijoles. I think there's going to be some ribs and collars. I think there's going to be some compound chicken, and I believe there's going to be some rice and peas, right? And maybe some bratwurst, right? Bratwurst, did I say that right, Tanya? <laughs> right. So I can't wait. The Bible talks about how men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation and, 
and nationality will be a part of this feast, will be a part in heaven. And so I believe it's very important for us to get used to each other now here on the earth because we're going to be spending a lot of time together in heaven. So why doesn't today's picture of the American church match up with this beautiful image from the book of Revelation? Why not? What's the source of the disunity? Well, it begins in Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter 11. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel? What happened there? Many of you know, the, the people of the earth said, Come, let's, let's build this great building. Let's build this great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the sky. This will make us famous. The NIV says, this will make us, have us make a name for ourselves. And so it was this act of pride, this act, uh, this act of power-seeking that led to the disunity. And so the Lord confused the people with different, different languages. In this way, He scattered the people all over the world. I believe that's why throughout the Scriptures, God emphasizes over and over again humility, to put others before ourselves, to seek unity, to, to put away pride. So Genesis 11, but then we come to Acts 2. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, that was when Babel was reversed. That day was when Babel was put away. The Holy Spirit enables the crowd at Pentecost to say, hey, we hear them speaking in our very own languages. The apostles' gift of the many languages emphasizes the fact that the Holy Spirit reverses the disunity of Babel and unites all peoples and ethnicities and tongues. But sadly, this reversal of disunity is something that the church of God in America has not embraced. Not long after giving his I Have a Dream speech in 1963, right after the march on Washington, Martin Luther King Jr. was invited to speak at Western Michigan University. And in a question and answer period, he said this. He said, we must face the fact that in America, the church is the most segregated major institution in America. At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, when we stand and we sing, Christ has no east or west, we stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. And this is tragic. You know, 50 years later, I wish we could say that things were a whole lot better. Tragically, we can't. I looked at a 2015 article from Lifeway Research this past week, and it says that, that it remains one of the most, Sunday morning remains one of the most segregated hours in American life. And that more than 8 in 10 congregations make up one predominant racial group. Thankfully... There's a growing trend among church planters, people who are, who are starting new churches, that have the idea, that have this dream to, to, to build multi-ethnic, multi-economic communities. And when we started Tri-Cities Church over six years ago, this was our dream. We did not want Tri-Cities Church to be monochromatic. Look at you. I love it. But this goal is more than just chasing a trend because it's popular. This, this desire does not come just for the sake of, of race relations, actually. That's a great goal, but it's not just for that. Our goal was deeply rooted in the Scripture that revealed the heart of God and His passion to have members of every tribe, every nation, every tongue seated around His table. 
thankfully, today we are going to talk about that. I want us to look at three tables in the New Testament. Three tables. And these tables are going to help us to see that our goal of multi-ethnicity is more than just a fad, but it is actually a mandate from God. So the first table that we're going to gather around is found in Luke chapter 14. Jesus has been invited to this dinner from this Jewish leader, this, this Pharisee. And as he sat and, and watched people coming in, the other guests, they were elbowing each other out of the way trying to get into the VIP section. They wanted to sit at the most important place of, of, of the dinner. And so he took this moment to teach them and to advise them. And he said, Luke 14, chapter 8, When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone is, who is more distinguished than you has been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. <laughs> and then you will be embarrassed, and you'll have to take whatever seat is at the foot of the table. And then Jesus says something that permeates not only his teaching, but his very being himself. He says this in verse 11, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host he said, when you put on a lunch or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. And that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, the res- then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who cannot repay you. So then one guy at the table gets overly excited. He says, you know... I can't wait to eat the, the banquet that's going to be in the kingdom of God. And I'm not sure if the guy was, was excited about Jesus and thinking he's going to be this new Messiah that brings in this new, new era here in Jerusalem or if the guy was just hungry. But he was excited about eating it. And, and Jesus, again, uses this as an opportunity to teach. And he, he tells a tale. And I like to call this tale the mega meal for misfits. Now, I told my, my son uh, these three titles of, of these three tables, and he said, I, Dad, I think you've been working on vacation Bible school a little too hard. <laughs> you need to, like, separate the two. But um, this is the mega meal for misfits. Jesus tells the story of a man who goes to the great trouble of preparing a fantastic feast, and he invites his friends. And then he sends out the invitations, and the excuses start pouring in the regrets, this and that, this and that, this and that. And although the host is furious, he doesn't let that stop him from giving the party. The party must go on. And so he turns to his servant and he says, Servant, go and get the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the homeless. Bring them. Bring them all. Bring them to my table. And then I love what the servant, after he does this, says to the master. The servant brings all the people, and then in verse 22 of, of, of that chapter, he says, there is still room for more. There is still room for more. Any congregation that does not make space and reach out to the economically challenged, the physically challenged, the mentally challenged, any congregation that does not make space for these does not line up with the picture Jesus is painting here. It does not line up with God's purpose and His intent for His kingdom and His church here on the earth. 
Tri-Cities Church, may we be a place, may we be a congregation, may we be a community that makes room for what others may call misfits. I love being a misfit. Jesus gives them a place of honor at his table. He gives them a place of honor, and so should we. So that's the first table. The second table I want us to gather around is described by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, the second chapter. It was a disappointing dinner of disunity. And it happened in a place called Antioch. Before we go there, though, I want to give you a, a, a quick background, some, some church history. Now, you know, the first four books of the, of the New Testament are what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're the Gospels. What do the Gospels do? They tell the story of Jesus. They tell the story of, of his birth, of his life, his teaching, his calling of his disciples. Then they talk about his arrest, his death his burial, his resurrection, and even go as far as his ascension, those four books. But the book of Acts then goes back and picks up right before his ascension as Jesus is giving some final instructions to his disciples. You know, those final instructions are like when you drop your kid off to camp and you're like, okay, I got, I, you need to remember these things, okay? Don't pick up any snakes. Um, take a shower every day, every day. And change your underwear every day. You know, it's important stuff, you know, that you want somebody to know right before you leave them, right? Well, that's what Jesus was doing here. He wanted them to remember these things, and so he said it right before he leaves. And so in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples something very key. He says, I want you to spread the word about me, the good news about me, to Jerusalem right here. But I don't want it just to stay here. I want it, you to end up in all the ends of the earth telling this story. The problem was the disciples, like us, were creatures of habit. They, they were excited about Jesus, and, and it was easy for them to talk about him to people that looked like them, that thought like them, that ate the same food as they did, they went to the same synagogue as they did, but to cross the boundaries of culture and race and language and geography, now that was a different story. You see, the disciples, they were all Jewish. They came from a long history of being Jewish. <laughs> they came from a long history of being loyal to their own race, their own religion, their own culture. And their history, think about the Jewish history. It included a lot of... of being conquered and being oppressed first by the Egyptians and then the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then at the present moment of Jesus' teaching, the Romans, they didn't have a good track record with others. And so in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells this group of good Jewish boys, I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And well... It's not until Acts 8-1 that they finally get the idea. That's seven chapters later. That's over a year later and a persecution later. God had to light a fire under his disciples by giving them persecution that caused them to scatter. He's like, okay, if you're not going to do it yourself, it's kind of like a parent again. He says, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to make you do it. And so he, he let persecution happen to the church. And because of that, they scattered everywhere. And when they scattered everywhere, guess what happened? They brought the message of the gospel with them. 
One of the places that they, that they brought the message to was this place called Antioch. It's a Greek city, and it was a, a town that's now in, in the modern-day country of Turkey. And as the gospel was spread and accepted in this, in this town of Antioch, guess what happened? A church was formed. And as far as it's recorded, this was the first multi-ethnic church that we know of. And we know it was multi-ethnic. We can read it. Actually, if you look at Acts 13.1, it gives a list of the first leaders of that church. I want you to take a look at this with me. Acts 13.1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas. Barnabas, we know, was a Jew. Simeon, called the black man, not a Jew, or maybe he was. Lucius from Cyrene, which was, Cyrene was part of North Africa. Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, as a man who had privilege, he had uh, education. We can, we can assume this by, by his relation. And then Saul, that's, that's who later became Paul, we know was Jewish and was also a Roman citizen. How's that for a diverse leadership group? That's pretty cool. The cool part about this, in, this place in Antioch is that the follower, this is where the followers of Christ were first called Christians in Acts 11. They were called little Christs. Now, what was it about this church, do you think, that caused other people to say, hmm, they remind me of somebody. They remind me of Jesus, little Christians, Christians. So, we haven't gotten to the dinner yet. What about this disappointing dinner of disunity? We don't read about it in the, in the book of Acts. Again, like I said before, we read about it in Galatians 2. Paul talks about it. And you may be very shocked and even disappointed when you find out who's at the center of this dinner, who's at the center of the controversy. It's the apostle Peter. You know the one. He's the guy that in Acts 10 received a vision from God himself that made it very well clear and known to him that God was going to accept all people of all races, all tribes, all tongues. In fact, his reaction to that is recorded in verse 10 when he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not want me to show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So Peter knows. In fact, after that, he ends up baptizing the first non-Jew into the church, Cornelius. Peter knows better. But let me tell you what happens in Galatians 2. You can read it for yourselves, Galatians 2, 11 through 21. Paul makes a visit to this Antioch church, and he finds a shocking but yet heartwarming scene. He goes into the church, goes downstairs to the fellowship hall, and he sees Peter sitting there with all his Gentile buddies eating some barbecue pork. He was enjoying himself, licking his fingers, loving every minute of it, loving the fellowship, loving the swapping back and forth the stories. Well, Paul stays for a little longer, and some people from the Jerusalem church show up. That's the church that had only Jews. That's the church that was really conservative, that, uh, that only believed that Jews could be part of the church. And when they show up, guess what happens? Peter gets up from the table. He doesn't even know him. He doesn't even know him. Come on, Peter. 
Come on, you can do better than that. And you know what? Paul believed he could do better than that. In fact, he called him down in front of the whole church and confronted them. And as the scripture says, he was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Don't miss that. Galatians 2.14 makes it clear. Peter was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. What is this truth? The truth is... The message of Jesus Christ is available for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And when we accept that truth, then we accept as family, as brothers and sisters, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every culture, every tongue that confesses that Jesus is Christ. Paul had to confront this with Peter, and then he continued to confront it. He confronted it to the church in Ephesus. If you look at uh, one of the most powerful verses about this is found in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside the flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Look at that. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And then one body to reconcile both of them to God through the, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Later in that same book in Ephesians 3, Paul calls this the mystery of the gospel. It's a mystery that people from all these different backgrounds and languages and cultures could, could be united. Yeah, Pastor Lamar a couple of weeks ago talked about this at the end of one of his sermons and how that if we bring prejudice, if we bring disunity, if we bring hatred of our brothers and sisters who don't look like us to the table, then we're making a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus. When you read the scripture... Because why did he die? To make the two one. So how dare any of us pick up the brick and mortar of of pride and prejudice and begin to build the wall back that he destroyed? The last table I want us to look at, table number three, that I want us to gather around is one that we actually gather around every single Sunday that we come together as a church. It's the sacred supper of self-sacrifice. Now, all four of the gospel writers tell us about this supper. They tell us about this Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. But it's the book of John that talks about what he does before that supper happened. The book of John tells us that before they share this meal together, Jesus takes a towel, he fills a bowl of water, and he gets down on his knees... And making himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, who were these disciples? Whose feet was Jesus washing? Well, we know Peter. Peter, that that Jewish fisherman who was sometimes a loud mouth, sometimes a foul mouth. He washed his feet. And down the row... He washes Judas' feet. Judas, that guy that was obsessed with power, obsessed with money, washes his feet. Then down the road, he washes Matthew's feet. Matthew, the tax collector, who who was okay with 
with enough with Rome that he would actually get a job with Rome to collect taxes. And then down the road, down the, down the row on the other side of the table, is Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was part of an activist group that wanted to do away with Rome, wanted to free Jerusalem, and they would even use violence if they needed to. Can you imagine the campfire discussions between Matthew and Simon the Zealot? That's some, that, that, that had, I wish I could have been a, a fly around the campfire. <laughs> but think about it this way. I believe that only Jesus himself could unify two men that have disagreed more politically. And the same is true today. Here. <laughs> Jesus alone can unite people of varying backgrounds who hold strong differing opinions into one family. And so Jesus washes their feet, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that he shared with them after that this supper. And when he shared the supper, he, he broke bread, which represented the body that, that he would sacrifice later. Then he, he shared a cup that held wine that, sacrificed the, that, that symbolized the blood that he would shed. And then he leads them out to pray. He leads them to the garden, and he prays a very personal, gut-wrenching prayer. But John lets us see a little bit of this private prayer that Jesus prays. It's a long prayer. But I want to point out just one little, little part of that prayer. He, he, he prays, Jesus prays for his disciples, and then he prays for you and for me. John 17. Take a look at it. John 17, the 20th verse. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be what? One. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world... Don't miss this. So that the world will believe you sent me. You see, the unity of these, these men of different backgrounds, of different, different cultures, different philosophies and political perspectives was an argument for the validity of the gospel. Jesus is basing his very reputation on the fact that they could be one, and he is doing the same thing with us today. Do you see how important it is? His prayer, Christ's prayer, is that he is resting his reputation on our unity. So in case you didn't realize it before, in case you didn't know why we take it so seriously, now you know we take this seriously. It's not just something cute for us to do, to put on a poster. We believe it comes from Scripture, and we believe it is an argument for the validity of the gospel. And so today, as we finish up, I, I, I want us to discuss how it is that we are to approach diversity how are we to come to the table of diversity well first at tri-cities church we approach diversity with another one of our value words intentionality our human inclination follows the old adage birds of a feather do what flock together i mean that's human nature but do you see this see this it is the job of the Christian. It's part of being a follower of Christ to fight our human nature with the help of the Holy Spirit when it does not agree with the will of God. When it opposes God's will, we are to fight our human nature. 
And the only way we can do this is by being intentional about it. Now, later in this series, we're going to talk more about intentionality. But you're going to see throughout all of these that all of these value words that we have, that God has given us, they intertwine. They intertwine. You'll see that we are intentional about our diversity, and you may have already noticed it on the stage here. We are intentional about it in our leadership, in our pastoral staff, in our elders, and the people who lead our, our city groups, our small groups, and the people who lead our ministry teams, and the people who make up our ministry teams. We're very intentional about that. We're intentional about even the worship styles and the worship songs that, that we choose. And so sometimes we'll be up here singing a song from Tasha Cobbs, and then the next, next thing you know, we're singing something from Chris Tomlin. And I hope very, very soon that we'll be singing some from Julio Melgar. Muy pronto. Right? Right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. We're, we're committed to be an, an intentional, intentionally diverse church. And sometimes that means difficult conversations. We are committed to have an intentional difficult conversations. Let me make it clear. Our unity is not about erasing or ignoring the past or pretending that we, we don't have a very difficult, embarrassing, sometimes shameful history in this country when it comes to race. Sometimes some of us have, have been guilty of thinking that, that our history is ancient history. And although this year marks the 400th year of, of slavery here in America, the ramifications of slavery, of Jim Crow laws, and of systematic racism still plague this country. And this hit me hard the other day. I was sitting across the table having lunch with an older gentleman that had been visiting this church. And I discovered that his, his parents had him late in life. His grandmother was born into slavery. Not his great-great-grandmother. Not his great-grandmother. His grandmother was born into slavery. That's not ancient history. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that in July 2016, after there were protests in the country and in Dallas over the killing of Alton Sterling and Philando uh, Castile, and then the subsequent shootings of the, of the police officers. Terrible day in our country. I'm glad that this church could gather together. We could worship. We could pray. We could love on each other. We could mourn. We could repent. And as part of, of, of preparation for that day, we arranged a meeting. One of our young black men, one of our white police officers, because I was going to have them pray on the stage for each other. And I said, we don't need to do that without a conversation. And so we did. And so Jaquel and Jimmy had a really tough, and it was not, it, it, yeah, they didn't play. And I was so grateful for that. I was so grateful that they didn't come in and just say a bunch of platitudes. They said what was on their heart and their mind. And then they prayed, and we wept together as a church. And then I remember after that, that Sunday having subsequent conversations with with several of you, my black brothers and sisters, as you talked about remembering those Jim Crow laws, about remembering having to go in the, in the back door, remembering being treated as, as less than by white people. 
I love, I love how we have a, a women's group, a city group that is not afraid to have the conversation. I love that a few years ago they, they did a study called Be the Bridge, and it was exactly that. They had some open, frank, sometimes painful, but much-needed conversations about race. My challenge to you and to me today is don't let that stop. Don't make it enough to come in here and sit on the same row with someone that's not of your race, to say hi in the hall. It's got to be more than that. There's got to be conversations. I challenge you, maybe it's today, maybe you don't have lunch plans. Invite somebody from, from another race, another culture, to come and begin having the conversations. And do it in love, do it with gentleness, do it with respect. But say, say some things that maybe need to be said. Ask some questions that need to be asked. Second, at, at Tri-C's Church, we approach diversity with humility. Notice that before he said a single word at that supper, Jesus demonstrated humility. He was, his message was loud and clear as he knelt before his disciples and washed their feet. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're reminded that, that Christ, following Christ requires humility. It requires us to be humble. And I believe this is especially true when it comes to matters of race. I may disagree with you, but when I consider you more highly than I do myself, it's going to, be, it's going to make it different in how we talk and how I listen to you. I remember back before we had the official start of Tri-Cities Church, <clears throat> I knew that I wanted this to be, and I felt like God was calling this to be a, a multi-ethnic, multiracial church, multi-economic church. and So I needed to find somebody that didn't look like me to help lead this thing. And so I, I, I began to talk with our former pastor who's here, Wesley Bolden. And uh, we, we started having lots of conversations on the phone, through email, through text. And we were really clicking. And I thought things were going really, really well. Until <laughs> one night he called me. He said, we need to talk. I hate that. <laughs> I hate it when Stacy says it to me. I hate it when uh, Wesley says it to me. We need to talk. Oh, it's going to be great. He said, um, why do you have a picture of you and your family with a Confederate flag on Facebook? I was like, what, what are you talking about? And then it hit me. <laughs> Crap. Um, my family and I, the couple years before, I had gone to Gettysburg. And, and they had Civil War reenactors. And we enjoyed the walk around, but I thought it would be cool. I thought it would be funny if my family, since we are Southern after all, would stand in front of that, that, um, that Confederate flag and take our picture. I thought people would get a good laugh at, about that. And I thought it would be a good nod to my Southern heritage. What I didn't think about was what I didn't think about was how that would hurt my dear black friends, how, how, what that, that flag meant to them. What I didn't think about was what that flag has become to mean in, in so many circles and societies, that message that it's sending that we're still here and you better stay in line. And what I didn't think about was what if 
an African-American person heard about Tri-Cities Church and started looking on the Facebook page and then said, well, let me check out this pastor. He's white, but I'm going to check him out and found that, that picture. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about it. And so I said, Wesley, thank you for letting me know. Thank you. And I apologized, and I deleted the sucker. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. It doesn't delete the fact that it happened. It doesn't delete the history. It doesn't delete the history. <laughs> but I deleted that picture. We've got to, to have a healthy dose of humility when we, when we approach race. And then lastly, we approach diversity through the lens of Christ. We're not, look, we're, we're not asking anyone to drop your race. We're not asking you to drop your culture. God made you who you are. Be who you are. Celebrate it. We celebrate differences here at Tri-Cities Church. We love it. We don't say, I don't see color. I see color, and I love it. I love color. But don't back away from the tension that he is calling us to live in as we surrender to Christ and become this new humanity that Ephesians 3.15 is talking about. Again, one of my favorite preachers is Tony Evans, and he preached a sermon on race using Jesus' interaction with, with the Samaritan woman at the well. And I love what he had to say about us surrendering our race to Christ. Take a look at this. Amen. Isn't that good? Yeah. Amen. So, I love how we, we ended worship today. We're talking about Jesus at the center. Think about that great wedding feast at, at, of the Lamb. Who was at the center? It's Jesus. That's the only way we can do this, y'all. It's the only way is if we put Jesus at the center. It's the only way that we can have the hard conversations. It's the, it's the only way that we can come with humility and, and, and speak to one another as brothers and sisters. So who's headed to this dinner? Guess who's coming? <laughs> every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And as we celebrate the supper that Jesus instituted here, like we're going to do right now, guess who's coming?
He's calling every tribe, every nation, every tongue to his table. And he's calling us to a place of dependence on him. And a place of dependence on one another. We're going to sing a song in just a minute that says, I need you and you need me. And it's going to be hard to swallow for maybe some of you that haven't been aroused for a while. But I want you to think about it. Look around at somebody that, that doesn't look like you and say, I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Amen? So we're going to finish here with communion like we always do. There's two tables here in the front, two in the back. And uh, there will be a, a place for you to also give if you came prepared to, to do that. If you are new to us, uh, don't feel any pressure about that unless God has called you to give. And uh, there will also be people at each station to pray for you and with you if you uh, would like that. So uh, let's pray together. And then uh, as soon as you are ready, uh, the praise team will be singing and uh, you can come and take the cup and the, the bread, the body and blood of Jesus. God, we thank you so much for making what seems impossible with men possible. When we look at, at the climate of our culture and our country, Sometimes we can walk away shaking our heads and just feeling like there's no hope. But we know there's hope. And we know that there's hope in, that's found in you and, 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 and the hope that you have given to the church. And so we pray, Father God, that we can grasp this picture, this beautiful picture that you painted of, of what heaven is going to look like. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every color. And God, that we can make it so on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for Ephesians that says that it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the death on the cross and the burial and the resurrection that you have destroyed the dividing wall between us. So we come to this table together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen.